Tonight, we are in this book that appears on the screen right now. I say that because I want you to pronounce this word. Leland, how would you pronounce the book that we are looking at here tonight? How would you pronounce this? Okay, Jill, what would you say? Okay. <laughs> Annette, what do you think? Okay. Lucille? Nathan. All right. Luke? We grew up calling it Nathan. The Bible here, well, this thing says the Latin and Greek call it Nathan, and they come. So I'm not going to say that. So to sum up, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but I will say this. You've heard in the Bible of the city of Capernaum, right? C-A-P-E-R-N-A-U-M. And the, the, the city of Capernaum, from things that I've read, is sort of the land of Nahum, or whatever. Not necessarily this guy. Um, but they all sort of root back to the same thing. So, N-A-U-M. I don't know. I don't feel like we all got a Nahum. Maybe you go back. It was all we all ever mentioned. We put them both together. So, uh, so I don't know if it's Nahum or Nahum or whatever word. It translates to comfort. It translates. It does. It translates to comfort or the comforter. Uh, but that does not really fit with what Nahum does uh, in the uh, in the story that we're going to look at. But whatever you, however you pronounce it, we're going to go with it. I will tell you this. I always tell the kids at school that whenever we're reading something or whenever we're dealing with the word, you know, I teach world history, so we get some names and some things that are not common. And I always tell them, like, no matter whether you know it or not, they have to do two things. They have to try it. And if they get it right, we'll all platform. And if they get it wrong, then we'll tell them how it is pronounced, but then they have to say it again. Well, tonight, I can't tell you how to pronounce this. I don't know if I know the answer or not. But if, you, if it comes to you, you have to try it, okay? So whatever it is, you got to try it. You can't just say, well, whatever, all right? So hopefully that's not going to be uh, the case with it. But whether it is, or however we want to pronounce it, this is the 34th book of the Old Testament. Uh, another one of these prophet books um, if you are in your Bible, it may depend on what your Bible looks like. Um, some of you may have older, um, maybe older versions of the Bible. I don't know if that's the right word or not. But if you look here, it's sort of almost like if you were writing a poem, how you would write it out. You know, if you ever read a poem that's, on a, that's in a paper, newspaper or something like that, how it's not necessarily in paragraphs. It just flows from one to another like you would read in a book. Uh, all of these minor prophets are written this way. And it makes it really difficult, uh, not to be complaining, but it makes it kind of difficult because none of them are really stories. And that's a problem with developing these lessons is that in some of the books early in the Old Testament, I mean, we could talk about um, Moses and, and, and leading the people out of Egypt, right? Or, or we could talk about marching around Jericho. In the New Testament, we're, we're full of things that, you know, the acts that Jesus did, the apostles did, or lessons that were written to other churches. <clears throat> 
But this collection of 12 minor prophets, this so-called Nevi'im that the, uh, that the uh, Jewish people call it, it all seems the same to me. And it may seem that way to you. You might see the thing. It feels like we're kind of talking about the same thing every Wednesday night. If that's the case, I apologize. I'm trying not to make it that way. But that's kind of what it is. And all of these are prophecies that deal with troubles that hit Israel. And they fall at different times, but they're all lessons or things about what's going to happen, for lack of a better way uh, of saying that. And there's 12 of these that, are, that, that we've been looking at, and we're, we're about to almost two-thirds of the way through uh, with those. But these were scriptures that people would have been very familiar with at the time. Um, these were stories that would have existed with the Jewish people uh, quite often. Uh, and, and these are things that they would have been quite familiar with. This was written about 650 B.C.-ish. Um, the Old Testament stops being written somewhere around 4 to 400 B.C. And there's about a 400-year gap before the New Testament starts. So we're a couple hundred years away from the end of the Old Testament right now. So we're close to the end of the actual collection of books. But I've mentioned this a time or two before, and I want to mention it again. The books of the Old Testament are not put there in order. Uh, there is no, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. They're grouped uh, in different ways. And even these uh, prophets toward the end are grouped differently as well. But tonight we're going to talk about uh, Nahum. And we've got a few different things here. You, you can see all of this on your uh, collection of stuff of what we are going to talk about. Tonight, <clears throat> this story goes right along with John. All right, so I want to refresh on what we know about the book of Jonah. Let's go back a couple weeks ago when we talked to Jonah, uh, talked about Jonah. And the story of Jonah, Jonah is told to go where? Yeah. He was told to go to Nineveh. What was the reasoning for him to go to Nineveh? Do what? Make them straighten up. That sounds like a Sunday school teacher right there. Straighten up and go fix this. So for them, he needed to go and talk to them. Jonah didn't like that idea. In fact, the Bible story tells that Jonah, instead of going this way, did what? He went as best far away as he could. And we all know what happens uh, with the sword, but eventually he finds his way to Nineveh. And do you remember how Jonah's teaching fell on the, uh, the citizens of Nineveh? They repented. They repented. It said from the top to the bottom, right? From the king and all the way down. Well, Jonah didn't like it. He got mad about it. Went out and sat under the, you know, sat down and got hungry and starving and the tree. You know, that all, whatever all that is. But we sort of leave that saying, Nineveh is on the up and up. Well, unfortunately, tonight, we're going to read in the book of Nahum that it didn't take too much longer before Nineveh gets what they were. They were back on the, the roller coaster that hit the high point, and now they were going to go back down to the bottom. This picture is a sort of recreation of the city of Nineveh, and we're going to be looking at that. And we'll see a few different pictures that I've got plugged in here for us uh, as well. First of all, we can read in Nineveh, uh, in Nineveh, and I will probably say Nineveh instead of Nahum, and I apologize for that. 
But in A.M., the first chapter, the first sentence, it says, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Now, I don't anticipate you understanding or knowing what that means because it's not really that big of a deal. But he comes from this village called Elkosh. All right, he comes from this place, Elkosh. We're in the 600s BC, so we're about 600 years before Jesus. Uh, I said there a minute ago that some people have thought that this might be near Capernaum, uh, that we read about a lot in the New Testament, but we really don't have a whole lot of knowledge of the location. Boo said a minute ago that his name meant comforter. Uh, When you think about comforting or being comforted, that is a positive thing, right? We've been comforted before, right? If you think about a comforter, you may think about something that goes on your bed, right? What's the purpose of a comforter on the bed? Serves two purposes, right? Keep you warm and look for me, right? All right? So the comforter, you know, you put that, pull that up, everything is just good. Well, that's what his name means. But what he writes about might not have been extremely comforting. In fact, it sort of goes the other way. What we do know there is what we see there at the end. He lives at about the same time of King Josiah. Uh, you may remember King Josiah is one of the good kings of the, the rare set of good kings uh, that existed in the southern kingdom, uh, along with Zephaniah, who we'll look at in a week or so, and then Jeremiah, who we've already talked about. So some names of people that he would have been uh, contemporaries with. When this is written, the southern kingdom uh, had not yet fallen. The northern kingdom had fallen. Uh, they fell to the Assyrians. And the major city in Assyria is, starts with an N. That's where Jonah went to. Nineveh. Got to hear from everybody. All right, all right, all right, good. So from Nineveh. So as we've seen, Israel and Judah will just fall to these outsiders. But at the time that he's writing, the southern kingdom, Judah had not yet fallen. He's talking about the northern kingdom right here. So that's a little bit of background. Let's go a little bit further with this. Now, Nineveh was in Assyria, and Jonah had preached there about roughly 150 years before Nahum was written. So 150 years prior. Well, if you think about how long 150 years is, 150 years for us today would be 1871, all right? None of us were alive in 1871. It's a good chance some of us know somebody or have known somebody in our life who was born and lived in 1871. The oldest of our folks here would have been born in the 30s, right? So when you all were 10 years old, did you know anybody that was 70 years old. Lucille, do you know any 70 year olds when you were 10? Yeah, I can't remember. But probably so. But that, you're starting to get a lot of pretty good ways away. So, this story of Jonah, which seems like a success, the people of Nineveh have fallen away. Now, is it fair to expect the people of Nineveh to have been strong the whole way? According to human nature, and, and not, not likely that they would have saved. You would have hoped, though, that what Jonah had taught them 
had worked perhaps for them. Jonah, uh, Jonah says they had repented, but by this point they had reverted to their cruel ways. And this was a major city during this time period. When I say cruel ways, it's more of a militaristic description. They did not treat the people that they came in contact with uh, very well. Uh, they were known for their cruelty, and in Nahum chapter 3, their severe mutilation of their victims. Mutilation is like worse than just somebody getting killed in war. It's sort of worse than that. You can read about some of that in the third chapter. Um, but they had reached the peak of their sort of violence under the leader whose name was Ashurbanipal. Right? And we're not going to look at that too much. But more than anything, Judah, what was left of the southern kingdom, was scared of Assyria. They had already defeated the northern kingdom, and there was genuine fear that their kingdom was going to be overthrown as well. And so this fear uh, that they were seeing here is part of the time period that Nahum is writing about. However, when this king that we just mentioned here, Ashurbanipal, whenever he dies, the kingdom of Assyria starts to collapse as well. Now that's important for what Nahum is going to be talking about uh, here in just a moment. So we'll stop there for just a second. Um, any questions before we go any further? So this picture is the fall of Nineveh. Now these are artistic renderings that came about much, much later. But in Nahum chapter 7, he's talking about how this city is going to fall. And so the first thing that we see here, as we said, this is a sort of a, a sequel, as it were, to the book of Jonah. But these people had been repentant and then they had changed. They had went back. Well, we may not be able to think about that as an entire country, but is that something that people deal with even today. We probably all know people that have ridden that roller coaster, right? They've been up here at the height and then they've dropped back down to the bottom. All right. And so Jonah says that they, you know, had repented, but long, not long after that, then it kind of collapses down a little bit. Uh, after that, Obadiah said the same thing. And yeah, God recognized the evil acts of the Northern King of Israel. And at a that they had inflicted. We read about that uh, in some of the earlier books as well. And the Assyrians had been allowed to take them captive. So we can't look at this and say, well, the children of Israel were perfect and all their neighbors were just harassing them. Were the children of Israel by any means perfect? Were they even close to perfect? Like, seems like every lesson that we've talked about, every time the children of Israel do something good, what happens almost on the next page? They do something bad. Oh, boys are doing great. Everybody's fine. And then what happens next? And it's, it's almost like you just want to take them up. Like, why can't you stop messing up? Well, can we relate to that? We sort of can. So, Israel had been taken over. And so, Israel sends 
Uh, God allows them to be taken over. We see different groups that did that. Israel repents. We read about how these other te- uh, territories uh, would be punished by God. And then Israel sins and they get taken over. And then those pl- Israel repent. There's just a steady stream. These people were human. We talked about this in some of the other lessons as well. These people were human. And this story of Nineveh is just one of many. So let's look at this uh, right here. Jill, do you care to read uh, what's here on the screen? Name chapter 3 and verse 7. So he is saying, he said that, well, this city of Nineveh that has taken over the northern kingdom, now they're going to eventually fall. Because this is the pattern that keeps happening. Do you think the people in the city of Nineveh expected a fall? Would they have expected a fall? hard to say we can't put ourselves in that spot but usually when your country is all powerful and everything's great the last thing you expect something bad happen right the last thing that you expect is oh it's going to collapse it's just like with anything when things are going good everything's going good right everything is going good i remember i was telling will about this other day i said will when i was in high school i said two out of the four years that i was in high school kentucky won a national championship in basketball it's like that was that was awesome. And they won one since. Had you asked me my junior year of high school, Daniel, how good is it to be a Kentucky basketball fan? You're like, man, it's great. They win all the time. It's not the same now, right? But nobody at that time was thinking like, oh, boy, boy you know, you better enjoy this. We're going to fall. We're going to be falling off. No time. That's not the way, that's not the way people act, right? When everything's going good at work, everything's going good. Ain't no reason why I don't expect to keep going good, right? I'll probably get this promotion and I'm going to be great. And then what will happen? It'll fall. So these stories are not so much just set for the time period. We deal with these same kinds of things. And every nation that's ever fallen was riding up here and then it fell. They all have. From Rome to Britain the U.S. It's happened in China four or five times over the years. Egypt, they all do. And it would be foolish, but none of us sit around thinking, oh, well, one of these days that we, no, we kind of ride that way. Well, I don't think that the people in Nineveh would have been expecting their country to sort of collapse. But, uh, but Nahum says it will. All right, let's go a little bit further. In the second and third in the second and third chapter, uh, Nahum vividly describes the fall of the city. I'm taking that writing from someone else right there. But in the last verses of chapter one, he points out what's coming for the city. All right? And what is coming is from God. Let's look at these two. There's two verses that we're going to look at right here. The first is uh, Nahum chapter one, verse 14. Uh, Annette, do you care to read that one? Your 
So let's look at these here real quick. First thing, the Lord has given a command concerning you. So he's talking to the people of Nineveh. This is not, don't get this confused, we're talking about that town over there, or that place over there, concerning you. It's almost like the finger points right at them. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Do we know what this word perpetuated means? Okay. Perpetuated sort of means carried on, continued on. And so your name will be continued on no longer. Now that doesn't mean that we're never going to remember the name of Nineveh. I don't mean that. But this Nineveh's great. Nineveh's great. Nineveh's great. That's not what we see here. That name is going to cease to be considered great. Out of the house of your gods, notice this. Is a plural, has an S on it, but also is the lowercase g. That's not the God of Israel, but their gods. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. He said, your gods are made how? Made by him, right? They are sculpted, and I guarantee you they were pretty. I'm sure they were fancy, I'm sure they were nice. But he says, I will cut off the carved image, the molded image. That's going to be gone. I will dig. Let's go back. What's this word right here? Your. What's this word right here? The Lord is given a command concerning you. Skip down a couple sentences. I will dig your grave. So it's over, right? And what's the reason in the last sentence right there? Why is the grave for them being dug? For you are vile. That's a really harsh sentence there, right? What does the word vile mean in our When we hear the word vile, what do we hear? V-I-L-E. Kind of like past reprehensible. You're, you're past terrible. Yeah. It's a stronger word than bad, right? If it said, for you are bad. I think so. It's strong. It, it, for you are disobedient. I don't know. That's, that's, I guess this feels like it's a much stronger word. I think it's almost, you're exactly right. It's almost an evil point to, you know, I've had kids in school that are bad. And then we figured it all out. I've had kids that probably trying to be an evil. They usually end up in a lot of trouble. But that's sort of the description right here. For you are. It's almost an unredeeming type of situation. It's reprehensible. It is. It's terrible. And so this description was geared right toward those people. Now, on the flip side, the, destru- the destruction of the wicked would be good, no- good news to those who desired to serve God. Let's go to the next sentence. Name chapter 1, verses Verse 15. Now, Linda, do you want to read that one? Behold, on the, on the mountains, be of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly set off. So, if we're looking at this as Nahum talking to the people of Judah, and there's a clear line between this is where God's people are and this is where God's enemies are. Then the first sentence, the one we just read, the first verse, number 14, was this is what's going to happen to the bad. <clears throat> this is what's going to happen to the good people. Behold on the mountains the feet of him 
who brings good tidings. So he says, look up here. You're seeing somebody that brings good tidings. What are good, what are good tidings? Good news. We don't use that word tidings very much anymore. Just a Christmas song. Good tidings to you, to you and your kin or whatever. We don't say something like that. That is a kin. That doesn't sound right. All right. The feet of him who brings good tidings. But if somebody shows up bearing good tidings, that's good, right? We've all been sitting in the hospital before, and somebody comes out, the doctor comes out, and he says, all right, surgery went well, this, this, and you're like, all right, feel a lot better, right? Behold the feet of him who brings good tidings. And then, who proclaims what? If you're living in a country that you're worried that there's going to be an invasion of enemies from the north, do these set of words look comforting to you? This guy is bringing good news, bringing peace. It says, O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows. What he's saying is, just keep doing what you're doing. All that you're, it's, you know, if I'm worried that something's going to happen, I might have to cancel an appointment. You ever cancel an appointment before? Something's gone wrong, or you got to cancel it, nothing worse, right? You got to cancel it. I don't know who will get it. He says, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows. Because, he says, about Nineveh, Assyria, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. That's comforting. And then the last sentence, he's what? Now, a minute ago, we talked about vile as being worse than just bad. What about utterly as a word when we're talking about being cut off? What does the word utterly mean? It's to the end. You can't go any farther. Complete. Can't go any further. How many of you have ever been partially cut off on your way home? There's been a wreck or something. You ever had that? And you got to turn around and you got to drive the other way, right? It's like, I don't It'll take five or minutes to get home. Or if it's in the worst spot, it might take a long time for us to get home. But we've never been utterly cut off, right? You know, that, it's been a couple months ago, but anybody that's coming from Lancaster, there was a wreck in front of Birdgrass. And that, it, I told Lewis, and I hated that there was a wreck, but it happened in a spot that was good for traffic because they followed us down behind Burger House and the ballpark and come out the other way. We weren't really cut off at all, but utterly cut off. What they're saying right here is that this enemy, this group, this invading force has been completely cut off. You don't have to worry about them anymore. That's a comfort to those people that are there. Now, what can we learn from Nineveh or from Nahum today? I told you I'd say the wrong thing the whole time. What can we learn today? Well, first of all, this is Nineveh today. Now, there's a city of Nineveh. It's in Iraq. That still exists, but this is a part of it. But this does not look like the kind of city that you would have envisioned a few thousand years ago of being this dominant group, right? This is what we see today. So, first of all, what can we learn from Nahum's teaching today? Well, first of all, we learn that evil doesn't triumph forever. Think about that for a sentence for just a second. Evil doesn't triumph forever. God's patience is not unlimited. Okay. Absolutely. 
Other thoughts on it? Let's go to the New Testament for a minute while you're thinking. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And we're going to start with verse 18. And I'm going to take us through the entirety of this. It's verses 18 through 32, so it's a little bit longer. But you know, in the Bible we see that sometimes God will give people over to what they want. We see that, right? Want something so much that he'll give them over to them. It's because these people, we we get this idea, I don't want to say these people, we have the same thing, that our idea, our plan is better than God's. And you say, well, that's not true. Well, in the Bible, sometimes we see that happens. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fit, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, mild and proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So what he's talking about here, this is Paul writing to the Romans, what he's talking about is in the history of Judaism, which would come to become Christianity, is full of these examples of people who, let's dumb it down a little bit, knew what they were supposed to do, but thought they knew better. We're not supposed to look at them. We could make a list of 20 things in there, 25 things. Knew they weren't supposed to do this, but didn't anyway. All right? You can fill in all those blanks. What are all these things that they were supposed to do, but they didn't? 
It said God just sort of gave over to them the word debased mind, I think was what was used right there. And so even in the New Testament, they were telling the story about people who said, I know better than God knows. Does that happen today? With everything. Because we can all make a list of things that we don't like. God's right about that. But things that we do like, eh, I don't know about God on that one. I think I might be right on that one. Does that happen today? Yeah. We, I mean, we can happen to us, right? But we see here from Nahum that first of all, it doesn't last forever. The Israelites have been led astray by their enemies. And our sins do the same for us. However, when sin takes us captive, are we forever captive? We talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning, right? What can we always do? We can always repent. That's what Israel would do. The problem was Israel would repent and then what would happen? They'd fall back. Well, we have those same kinds of problems. But it looks like what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, is people that said, I'm not interested in repenting. I know what is best. But that's not how the Bible story usually plays out. Second one. Repentance isn't the only step in our relationship with God. What did Jonah say had happened to the people of Nineveh? After he got through preaching, what have they done? What did the people of Nineveh do? They repented. Job well done, right? Don't have to worry about those those folks anymore, right? It's not what we say. They were genuine. They wouldn't have repented. I mean, heck, the king came out and I mean, he led the charge, as it were. So they were genuine in their desire to turn away, but they end up worse than where they'd started. Does that sound familiar sometimes? I'm trying to do the best that I can, and the one thing goes wrong, and I just completely fall off a cliff. And that leads to their destruction. You know, sometimes I feel like the church fails at this. I feel like Alan Webster talked a little bit about this uh, a couple weeks ago. He said, we, we, we preach heartily about baptism. And then it's like, you're in and this one, you don't take that next step. Well, if you give somebody a driver's license and then say, good luck, what's wrong going to happen? You know, you get a permit when you first start driving, but the rule is you got to have somebody in there with you. And it can't be your sister. <laughs> it's got to be somebody's love. Why do they want you to drive when you start out with mom or with dad or with your grandparent. Why do they want you to drive with that person? Somebody experience. Somebody can give you a little bit of guidance. You can watch for this right there. Because if you're 16, the first time you get in the car, you're by yourself, what are you going to do? It'd be a list longer than what we just read about in Romans chapter 1, right? All the wrong things. Got to go see the girls as fast as possible. Who cares about stoplights, all right? It's going to plow right through. They got to see how cool I am. We know sometimes it's like we baptize somebody and like, yep, you're good. Well, don't we need a little bit of guidance there with them? And then sometimes people 
who have done well, but then they fall away and they'll come back and they'll repent. And they'll, they'll maybe come to the front and they'll say, I want to make a change. Well, I'll give them a hug, pat on the back. See nothing. Seriously. And there's no guidance there on how to repent or how to carry out repentance. Because repentance is a change, yes, but there's more to it. Well, I repented, it's all fixed, right? There's more to it than that. And I think the church, I don't think I'm breaking new ground by saying I think the church struggles in doing this. I think we have a hard time with that. What are your thoughts on that? Last one. Third thing there, don't attempt to destroy God's people. This may seem a little odd to finish up with because we say, okay, well, God allowed Babylon to exist and he allowed Assyria to exist. And if we go back a couple, go back a couple of books, all those different Edom and uh, Phoenicia and all the, all, okay, well, those places exist. But when I say, well, today, bad places in the world? Well, yeah, there are. That's always going to be the case, right? And those places might have took over Israel for a while, but none of them really survived. And so for us as Christians, us in the church, we need to keep in mind that while 
It may seem bad at times. Will it always be bad? No. Yes, but no. The whole world is always going to have bad things happen. That is part of it. But our victory is not the same as what Israel's victory here was. Judah was victorious because the Assyrians were done away with. But after the Assyrians, there'd be another group and another group and another group. What's our victory as Christians? Hold So who is our enemy? Anything to finish up there. So I would say that God would hope for us to be in heaven, correct? That would be his desire. But who has control of that? We do, all right? We do. You know, you've probably heard somebody say, you ever heard somebody say, God has a plan for all of us? You ever heard somebody say that? I don't know how that works, but I think that's probably true. All right, we're kind of living through that plan, as it were, uh, for, for all of us. But there's always going to be stumbling blocks along the way, right? Things that are going to attempt to trip us up, or maybe not. But these people that Nahum was talking about, these, this group of people in Nineveh, they were being told that their time as the enemies of God was finished. That they were done as being an enemy to the people. Well, for us, our enemies will be there until the day we die. But it's our goal, our responsibility, our effort to work through that to overcome those enemies. And I would say, like we talked about there just a moment ago, that it would help us all to overcome those if we link hands with one another instead of you having to defeat that enemy on your own that you chained up with me able to pull each other through so i think that's our hopefully our goal here for what we're looking at this evening is there if there's anything that we can do for you any way that we can help you anything that we can do we'd invite you to come while we stand and sing I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I 